0: Luke chapter 16, for those of you coming expecting a Christmas message this morning, that'll be next week and the week after. I want to get through Luke 16, though, um, because I think there's some really important stuff that that we need to hear this morning from this chapter. As you head south on I-71, south of Columbus headed towards that dreaded city on the river that we should give to Kentucky. Um, When you get past, when you get right around mile marker 81, you're close to the little burg of Mount Sterling. Anybody know the important landmark that is there right along the freeway? Someone said it. Say it louder. Hell Hell is real. How many of you are familiar with seeing the hell is real billboard there? It's gained national attention, um, it's actually the name that's given to the rivalry between the MLS teams between Columbus and Cincinnati, they call it the hell is real rivalry. It was put up by a real estate developer who has put them up all over the south and the Midwest. And he said if he didn't do it, he knew he would be disobeying God because God told him to do it. I don't know if God told him to do it or not, but it has become quite a spectacle for for our nation. Quite a bit of notoriety for Mount Sterling. Not only the Mount Sterling bluegrass jamboree, Ed, but hell is real, right? So according to a Pew Forum research survey, if you can trust the Pew Forum research company... 73% of Americans believe in heaven, 73%. Only 62% of Americans believe in hell. And I would submit to you that there are 38% of Americans who are running around like ostriches with their head in the sand right now. Hell has become a word that is a part of our everyday vernacular. You probably hear the word hell quite a bit. You probably hear it in your workplace. You probably you probably hear it used to describe um, bad, tough situations. It's a word to judge performance. I was I was listening to a press conference after after a ball game a couple weeks ago, and, and one of the guys was asked how he played. He said, "I played like hell," and I'm like, "Not really, <laughs> not really." But it's become so commonly used that we beco- we become. Desensitized to the word. We totally become desensitized to the word. Um, in fact, using the word hell to describe a terrible event here on this earth cheapens our understanding of what hell truly is. Cheapens our understanding of what it truly is. I've talked with people who have told me that that their marriage is hell. And I'm like, you should be so lucky. You should be so lucky jesus spoke about hell more than any other person in our bible and i think he's qualified to speak about it don't you spoke about hell more than anyone else and in our text today he's going to give a parable that centers on two main themes that jesus talked about a lot um At the beginning of chapter 16, we saw Jesus talking about money and taking the Pharisees to task for for their improper use of their money. They saw the money as for themselves and not for the benefit of anyone else but themselves. And now Jesus is going to go back and revisit this idea of wealth and money, but he's going to also bring up the subject of hell. This subject is really near and dear to me, and here's why. When I was seven years old, when I was seven years old, I, I was in a Sunday school class, and, and, and I can remember my teacher, Marjorie Tripp was her name, dear old lady, who, who week after week in a small country church took all of us who were in elementary school, which was about five of us, okay, and she taught us Sunday school faithfully every week. And I can remember at seven years old praying and thinking that, that I had accepted Jesus as my Savior. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But I can remember vividly in that same country church five years later, 12 years old, our pastor getting up. And, and for a month, he preached on eternity, heaven, and hell. And the message that he preached on hell literally scared the hell out of me. It did. He described it in Jesus' words. He preached about it. And and I literally, as I sat there, it was like I could see the horror of it. And it was in that moment that I made sure, the Holy Spirit was working hard in my heart, that I made sure. And I can remember my dad getting up, and it was the last church that my dad ever really served in. My dad was leading the singing at the end of the service. I got up, interrupted him, grabbed his hand, took him into the basement of that church. And I said, I don't want to be in hell. God loves us enough to tell us about the horrors of hell. He loves us enough to tell us about the horrors of hell. And so this morning, I want to read this final part of Luke chapter 16 with you. We're going to begin in verse 19, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Jesus is going to tell a parable here. This is a, he doesn't announce it as a parable, but he's telling a story. Okay, The, the people who are listed in this story, they, they, if we were telling the story today, if it was on TV, it would say, these characters are fictional for the purpose of storytelling, yada, yada, yada. This is a parable. Okay? Lazarus is not the Lazarus that we know, that we find out in John chapter 11 here. It's just a, it's just a name that Jesus has picked, and we'll see why he picked this name. And and so Jesus doesn't necessarily have anybody in mind here, but what he does have is a principle to teach to, to his disciples and to the Pharisees who are right there observing this. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Go ahead and just say it, that's gross. Yeah. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father Understanding hearts this morning. Spirit, convict hearts that need convicted. Encourage hearts that need encouraged. Edify hearts that need build up this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For our outline purposes this morning, pretty simple. We're going to look at two drastically different lives, two very distinct destinies, two pleas. And then we're going to look at some various lessons at the end of this, some things that we need to really look at and understand from this passage of Scripture. So let's look at the two drastically different lives here that Jesus paints for us in this parable. We first meet in verse 19, this rich man. We know nothing about him except for the fact that he has a lot of wealth. Okay? Now, if you've been tracking along as we've been going through the book of Luke, especially just a couple weeks ago when we talked at the beginning of chapter 16, how would the Pharisees have felt about this guy who's dressed in purple, who eats really well, and who's really rich? Would they have liked this guy? They'd have loved this guy. This guy was, was their kind of guy. This was the kind of guy that if they weren't on his guest list for his parties, they wanted to be on his guest list. This is the kind of guy that they wanted. If he wasn't a Pharisee, we need to sign you up. You need to become a Pharisee. So this guy is loaded. He's a man who, who is not dressed like your typical Jewish man. He's dressed in purple. He's dressed in royal colors. He's a man with lavish tastes. The the Bible says here, Jesus says that he feasted sumptuously every day, okay? If he wanted filet every day, he got filet. If he wanted to mix in a little pheasant under glass one of those days, he'd mix that in, okay? This guy wasn't eating peanut butter and jelly, this guy, this guy wasn't doing what you and I do. He wasn't going to Kroger and buying the little minute bags of rice and throwing it in the microwave and, and warming that up and calling that dinner. Okay? This guy was doing well. In fact, you could say it this way he had no wants or needs. He had it all. He's the guy that you and I would be scratching our heads and wondering how, what do we get this guy for Christmas? This guy needed nothing. He wanted nothing. If he wanted it, he took care of it and got it for himself. And so you have this rich man who who is very much satisfied and consumed with his wealth, and he's living his wealthy life. And yet that contrast then in verse 20 with a guy named Lazarus. Notice in verse 20. This man, Lazarus, was laid at this guy's gate. He didn't have the ability to get to the guy's gate. He was literally brought there. And what what you get from here listening to to Jesus and, and looking at the original language was, this was a continual thing every day in Jesus' mind as he's telling this story to them, the parable. This guy daily was brought to beg at this rich man's gate. Not only is this guy poor, not only is this guy crippled, this guy has got some serious physical conditions. Look at verse 20. He's covered with sores. Now, I, my intention is not to be gross this morning, but, but if you are covered with sores, there are certain things that go along with that. Not only are you sore yourself, and, and you can't hardly move without those sores breaking open and, and seeping and cracking, but let's just be honest here. Nurses, you know this better than anybody. This guy stinks doesn't he? This guy, this guy's got some, no one wants to be around this guy. No one wants to be anywhere near this guy. And and I am sure that as Jesus is telling this, the Pharisees, as much as they, they link themselves to the rich man, they're thinking about this guy laying there and they are just repulsed by that guy. Because this guy's unclean. This guy's diseased. This guy obviously did something in their minds that, that brought this on himself. He was getting what he deserved. Notice how desperate his situation is in verse 21. This is what he wanted. He just wanted the scraps, the leftovers, from that guy's kitchen. That's all he wanted was the scraps. He just, he just wanted someone to bring out, okay, Hey, there's a little bit of meat left on this T-bone. You want it? Yeah, I'll take it. He just wanted the stuff that you and I scrape into our garbage cans on a daily basis when we're doing dishes. That's all he wanted was the stuff that was left over. And he doesn't even get that. Jesus, to add insult to injury, if you will, in verse 21 says it this way, moreover, not only was he not getting fed, but the dogs were coming and licking his sores. He has no way to run from the dogs. He, he's just laying there. He can't move. And the dogs are coming and licking his wounds. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is, this guy got more compassion from the dogs than he did from the man who owned the house. You ever gotten a sore and your dog figures it out? It's like dogs have radar for sores. I, I cut my hand earlier this week. Just a little nick on this finger, right? Our little dog, she found it like within five minutes, and she would not leave the thing alone. I'm like, you're becoming a pest. The dogs were showing more compassion than this rich man. But there's an interesting detail that we might not connect here, but I want to connect at this point. Because immediately we move into verse 22, and both of them die. But but there's an interesting detail that I want to connect here. If you look down in the text, at verse 24, as as the rich man who is in hell, and we're going to get to that in just a second, he addresses Father Abraham in Jesus' story here, and he calls the guy by name. Do you see it there? He calls the guy by name, which would indicate to us, those of us who are thinking and using logic this morning, these guys had crossed paths at the gate. This guy, the rich guy, knew this guy's name. It wasn't like this guy had gone under the radar to the rich man. The rich man knew who he was. He knew his name. And that's an important detail. The other important detail that I want you to see here is is that this rich man considered himself to be one of the religious elite of Israel. He considered himself to be the child of Abraham. Verse 24, he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He he was heartless to, to this man Lazarus, but he considered himself to be a very religious man. Abraham is my father. I'm the child of Abraham. I'm one of the chosen ones. This would be very indicting to the Pharisees. Because this is who they are. They, they got their theology right, they got their theology right, but they didn't get their orthopraxy or the living out of their theology correct at all. And, and I want to make a point with you here this morning. You may know your Bible forwards and backwards, but if you aren't living it out, it does no good for you at all. In fact, you're better off not knowing half the stuff you know and living out the half that you do know. And there are some of us who sit here this morning, and and we pride ourselves on our biblical knowledge, but our lives don't at all back up what we say we know. This is going to sound really harsh coming from a pastor, but I am tired of all the theology. And I realize it's important. I'm going to probably get darts here from the other elders. But, But I want to make a point here theology is only as important as your commitment to live out the theology as it comes to your heart. If you're just a theological student and you just want to know more of the Bible just so you can get a big old head and walk around and think that you're smarter than everybody else, guess what? There's going to be a lot of theologians in hell. There's going to be a lot of theologians in hell. And so... What we don't see here is this guy living out what he knew to be true. For instance, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, some, so a passage of scripture, would you expect a guy who was religiously connected, a father or the child of Abraham to know the prophet Hosea? I would. Hosea 6, 6 says this, God desires steadfast love. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He would also know Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. A verse that you know. It's turned into like this, this great verse that we put on plaques and hangs on our walls now. But, but this was part of God's, God's writing in the Old Testament. What does God require? To do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. This guy would have known that. And here's the, here's the thing about this guy that not all of us can, can really resonate with because we don't have that kind of wealth. But let's understand something. This guy had a great capacity to show mercy, but he did nothing with the capacity that he had. He had a great capacity to to demonstrate mercy, but he didn't have the heart to do it. He didn't have the heart to do it. And so we have these two distinct men here, as Jesus lays this out for us, and we're going to see two distinct destinies. And I want to caution you here. I want to caution here as we talk about these two distinct destinies. Just because someone is rich does not mean they're going to hell. Okay? Are we clear on that? that that's not the point of this parable. And if, and if we're just looking at it on the surface, we might think that's what Jesus is saying here. If you have a 401k, it doesn't mean you're on the verge of being you know, burned in hell for the rest of your life. That's not what Jesus is pointing at here. But there are two distinct destinies here. Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Okay, He dies with no fanfare whatsoever. They, the Pharisees, the, the people who would be hearing this message, they knew this kind of death. This is the kind of death that just disgusted them. This was the kind of death that when this, this guy died, they didn't waste any time. They probably didn't even dig a grave for this guy. They just took him and threw him out in the garbage heap. And after all, what would be the point of showing any honor to this guy? He didn't live an honorable life in their eyes. What would be equally appalling to them is, is where Jesus puts this guy in eternity. This guy dies, and he's taken by the angels to Abraham's side. What? What? This guy obviously had some sin issues in his life, Jesus. I can hear the Pharisees thinking in their minds. If He's so sick in this life, he's being judged in this life. What makes you think that he'll make it to heaven? What makes you think at all that he's going to get there? There's no burial record for him. But this is where we need to consider the name Lazarus. Jesus chooses this name intentionally. The word means, the name means, God has helped. God has helped. If you're the child of God here this morning, you really are a Lazarus. Do you know that? God has helped. And it didn't seem true in the life that he had lived. But make no mistake, his faith in God is what landed him at Abraham's side. And Abraham's side is just a finger of speech that the Jews knew for heaven. He was in paradise. That would be so appalling to these Pharisees. But equally appalling would be where Jesus would place the rich man. Look with your eyes here. Verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. That, that's an added, there's an added thing here. The, the, the poor guy, Lazarus dies, no fanfare, nothing. The rich man dies and he was buried. I mean, it was probably the full-blown Oriental Eastern custom, seven-day whole thing. The, the, the mourning, the hired mourners, mourners brought in, the whole shebang. Because after all, he's a rich guy. And notice his destiny, verse 23, in Hades. What? This fine, upstanding man, this pillar of the community, he dies and he's in hell. Jesus, you have lost your mind. And it's tempting to think. That he made it to hell because he wasn't generous in his life, but that's not the point here. Here's the point. The reason that he made it to hell, the reason he ended up there was, is because he lived his life trusting in his own righteousness. Trusting in his own riches. Trusting in his own goodness. He may have been one of those guys, we don't know, but sat back and just put his hands up one night, put his head behind his hands and said this, I'm a self-made man. Hell will be full of self-made men and women. It will be full of them. And so the Pharisees are now in a quandary as they hear this. It's not their story to tell, it's Jesus' story, but this story is, is, this is a terrible story in their minds. First of all, you got these guys in the wrong place, okay? You, You got them in the wrong, you got them in the wrong place, But then Jesus continues on. Verse 24, the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you see the self-righteousness still in this guy? Here he is in, in Jesus' story in hell fire and he is still asking for somebody to serve him. There is no end to the depravity of man. And I know that some of us would like to think that possibly some of the most evil figures in society, once they got to hell, they would really rethink this. I don't think Adolf Hitler thinks anything different today about God. This guy is suffering in the fires of hell and he is still demanding that someone would come and serve him. Have mercy on me. There there, there's no there's no relief that's granted here. And so notice what what Abraham says to him, Child, remember that in your lifetime you you received your good things, and Lazarus in the manner in him like manner received bad bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you there's a great chasm that's been fixed. In other words, you know, even if even if I would send him over, he can't get there. And so he makes a second plea in verse 27. Again, again, asking someone to serve him. I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest I also come into this place of torment. Make a note here. Make a note here. Hell is bad enough that those who are there don't want anybody else to join them. Do you see that do you see that they don't want anybody else there to join them and notice Abraham's response verses 29 to 31 basically his response in verse 29 is this I- I'm not going to send Lazarus because they have the word of God they have the word of God you see it there They have Moses and the prophets. That that is what Jesus is saying there. They have the whole Old Testament. That, That was the common way they referred to the Old Testament was Moses and the prophets. And here's what Jesus is saying. I don't need to send anyone to them. They have the word of God. And the rich man pleads with him again, and he argues with him. He says, no, Father Abraham, verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He says, I know this. If you send Lazarus back, and now that he's been to paradise, and he appears at my family's house, my brothers will believe him. And Jesus then really indicts all of the self-righteous in verse 31. If they won't hear the word of God, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's be clear here. This is a damning word from Jesus. Because here's what he's saying. All of you, all along, Israel, you've had everything you needed in the Old Testament. You've had it, and yet you've chosen not to believe it. And now here I am. I am the one who's going to die and rise from the dead. You're not going to be convinced when I rise from the dead. What a damning word this is. And quite honestly, this parable ends really depressingly, doesn't it? Really depressingly. But I think there's several applications that we need to make here this morning, and I want to be clear in these. Number one: hell is real. It's a very real place, and it is a place to be avoided. When I was a kid growing up, (laughs) I'm going to really date myself. Some of you are going to be like, cool, I used to listen to him too. Remember Billy Joel? Sing us a song, Piano Man? He wrote a song, and he said, only the good die young. And in that song, he said this, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints. The sinners are much more fun, and only the good die young. And his whole point was, you know what? I'd rather live my life to please me, and if I die and go to hell, the sinners are much more fun. There's no fun to be had in hell. There's no fun to be had in hell, it's to be avoided. And you say, why does there even need to be a hell, PD? Why would a loving God create a hell? That's a question that's going on out in our world today. And I would tell you this, because not only is God a loving God, he is a holy God. And hell absolutely demonstrates the holiness and the justice of our God and how much he hates sin. God hates sin so much that he is he has prepared himself a place of conscious torment for eternity for all who will not repent of their sins. That's how much he hates sin. We know from seeing it here in verses 23, 24 and 25 as Jesus tells this story that it's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish. It's a it's torment and anguish that will last for how long, church? Eternity, how long is eternity? Forever and then forever on top of that, right? Matthew, when, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks, in Matthew chapter 13, he says it this way. He says that the anguish is so great that it causes people to gnash their teeth. That's not a word we use, gnashing our teeth. They used to think gnashing your teeth was like running around going, Gnashing ah. your teeth is just grinding your teeth. Have you ever been in a situation so stressful and and you realize, good grief, why is my jaw so tight? It's because you're grinding your teeth. And he goes on to say it's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Those are all signs of great regret. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 43, Jesus describes hell this way. It's a place of unquenchable fire unquenchable fire. And then in verse 48 of that chapter, he goes on to say, not only is it unquenchable fire, but this is fire unlike any fire that you and I have experienced because worms don't die in this fire. Which tells us this. You're not going to be sent to hell, get there and turn into a crispy critter and just live eternally as a crispy critter. No, you're going to eternally Consciously suffer in a place that's designed to make suffering the highest. Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, the last time on earth I think that he talks about hell, he describes it this way, it's a place of outer darkness. (laughs) We think about it, you read all the descriptions in the book of Revelation of heaven and it, the one thing that stands out is it's, it's, it's about the brightness and the light of heaven, right? It makes sense then that the place where God is would be the place of light, right? And, and hell is outer darkness because God, God has withdrawn himself. Once he, once he judges mankind and places them in the lake of fire, God withdraws himself completely. There is no light there, it's outer darkness. Hell is real. It's to be avoided. That's the first thing we need to understand. If you get nothing else this morning, understand this. Hell is real. And it's to be avoided. Secondly, second application, there is a way to avoid hell. There is a way to avoid hell. And Jesus is the way. One must understand, one must believe the truth that God has revealed about himself in his word. Just the same way that we have to take it by faith that there is a heaven and there is a hell, we have to then take by faith what God has revealed about himself in his word. And, and, what, and what God has revealed about himself in the wor- his word is this, is that he is a holy and that he is a just God and that he will judge sin. How do I know this to be true? Because that's what he did to Jesus on the cross. The Bible tells us this, that when when Christ hung on the cross, that that our our sin was placed on his shoulder and God judged that sin. How did God judge that sin? He turned his back on Jesus. In that moment on the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's fair to say that Jesus experienced what it's like to experience an eternity of hell right in that moment not only do we have to believe that God is holy and just and that he'll judge sin we also have to believe that you and I are born sinful and we continue to sin because we absolutely love it we're rebels we're born that way And unless we repent, which means to have a change of heart about our sin, unless unless we come to a point where we realize that our sin is an offense to a holy God and we admit our sin, we confess our sin, and we we, we turn from our most damning sin, which is the sin of our own self-righteousness, thinking that we're good enough, until we turn from that, we're on a collision course with the gates of hell. We have to repent. But then we have to understand this. That in repentance is where God meets us with grace. Repentant sinners are saved by grace and grace alone. There's no self-righteous. Do you realize there will be no self-righteousness in heaven? That's one of the best things about heaven, whether or not you realize that or not. There will be no self-righteousness in heaven. We won't have to try to outdo one another in heaven. Isn't that awesome? But hell will be full of a lot of regretful, self-righteous souls. I think it's fair to say that the charge that could be brought against every person who will inhabit the lake of fire is this they trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own righteousness. So that's the second application. One, hell is real. Two, hell can be avoided. But there's a third application here, and it might be a small one, but I think it's important. Again, Jesus is talking about money here in this parable, isn't he? He's indirectly talking about money and the use of our wealth, and, and I want to say this, that the use of our wealth, and, and let's remind ourselves, who are the wealthy ones, church? Who are the wealthy ones? Do they live in New Albany or are, there, are we the wealthy ones? We're the wealthy ones. The use of our, of our wealth in relation to the needs of our neighbors around us reveals much about our spiritual condition. Let me say that again. The use of our wealth in relation to the needs of our neighbors around us reveals much about our spiritual condition. If we see our wealth as ours and we're tight-fisted with it, it says a lot about our hearts. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17 John is writing here to, to a group of believers, and he's giving to them ways to know that they're truly the children of God, okay? Ways that they can know. And in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 17, he says this, if anyone has the world's goods, okay, church, let's, let's make sure we understand what we're talking about here. How many of us in this room have the world's goods? You better put your hand up. How many of us have the world's goods? If anyone, does that mean us then, church? Hello? Are you awake? Is he talking to us? I got more feedback from the online people than I did from you. He's talking to us, right? If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, notice what it says. How does God's love abide in him? John's just asking a legitimate question here, isn't he? If you can't can't help a brother who has a need, he's saying, how do do you really have the love of God in you? One of the marks of believers is this, is that we take care of our family, not just our physical family, but our spiritual family. We take care of them. Turn over with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, you know this, but I want you to see it for yourself this morning. James 2, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, or in today's vernacular, God bless you, I am praying for you. Come on, how many times do we say that? God, I'm praying for you. And if we really want to be really spiritual, I am really praying for you. And, we, and, we, and if we get the pained look on our face, I am praying for you. That's, that's the equivalent of James here writing here go be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? See, Christianity is very practical, and this is where I was beginning with. We, we can get all the theology right that we want to get right, but if we won't meet needs, then guess what? Our theology is worthless. It's worthless. If we don't take this stuff seriously, then how can we say we take the theological stuff seriously? I could say a lot more, but I'm not going to. I want to make the fourth application. And to me, this is probably the really important one. How many of you have a copy of the Bible? How many of you have it in paper form and electronic form and other forms? How many of you have multiple copies of the Word of God? Yeah. Good, because you're, you're good spiritual people, right? And you're in church on Sunday morning. You've got to raise your hand for that, right? Do you realize what a blessing it is that not only do we have the law and prophets, but we have the New Testament on top of that? Do you realize what a responsibility that is, though? Go back with me to Luke, chapter 16. What is it that Jesus claims will be? the thing that will change the mind of the five brothers at the father's house? What is it, the thing that he, is it, is it going to be the, the magical reappearance of this, of this man, Lazarus, who's going to come back from the dead and talk to them? What is it that Jesus says will transform their hearts? What is it, church? The word of God. The word of God is what? It's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, it's, not, it's not even that someone would rise from the dead in this amazing thing. Jesus is saying, you know, if they don't hear verse 31, the Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what Jesus is saying is this, we have everything we need in his word here. It's, in fact, in the, in the New Testament, Paul will put it this way, it's everything that we need for life and for Godliness. You know, we we need we need this book more than ever. We need to know what it says. We need to follow how it tells us to live. We need we need to be concerned about what it says and not what what outside voices are saying. The only voice that really matters right now in the time that we live in—it's always been this way since the beginning of time. The only voice that really matters is the voice of God, and He speaks in His Word. So, hell is real. It's not just a thing on a billboard. It really is real. And it's to be avoided. And God loves us enough to tell us about it in his word. If you're here today, and maybe you were like me when I was 12 years old, and you feel like you're getting the hell scared out of you, that's a good thing. Come talk to me. Come talk to Andy or Paul or Aaron Talk to one of the deacons. We would love to sit down with you at the word of God and show you how today you can know that you don't have to face hellfire. How you can live your life to please God who made you to to be, he said, we're his workmanship created for good works. You don't have to live your life In this pursuit, in this headlong, you know, falling into the the pit of hell, you can live it for a far greater purpose. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I'm thankful that in your wisdom, you chose to record this parable for us in the book of Luke. Oh God, what a horror to think. Of what hell truly is. We can't even begin to fathom it, I'm sure. And for those here today who, who do not know Jesus as their Savior, who have not rejected their self-righteousness to claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he so willingly wants to give and to receive forgiveness of sins, I pray for them today that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for, for those who are your children forgive us for being tight-fisted with our with the goods of this world forgive us for 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 being selfish god i pray that you would use this parable to change our hearts today in jesus name amen, amen.